0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Well, good afternoon. I am going to talk about one of the things that people in my position with a platform like mine and a building like ours have a very complicated relationship with, and throughout the history of the church and really the story of the church and the story of finances uh, have a very complex marriage. There has been great abuse and great mistrust and great abandonment of God because of how people use and have abused money. And it honestly just doesn't feel like there's a day That doesn't go by, or at least a week that doesn't go by where the name of Jesus isn't drugged through the mud because of how financial interest drew the attention away from the mission. And this isn't a new issue. I mean, in the most prominent church in the entire world, there was a teaching about what was known as an indulgence, which was simply a, a way to reduce the amount of punishment that one has to experience for their sins. And among other things, this typically involved some sort of financial payment. And on the backs of indulgences, massive cathedrals were built, and the church inevitably became corrupted from the inside out. And for as much good as the Catholic Church did for much of the earth, that stain has been difficult, if not impossible, to erase. Now, I mean, of course, the Catholic Church is not the only perpetrator of gross financial immorality by a long shot. The Protestant Church has built their own cathedrals, padded their own salaries, and been very disinterested in the plight of those on the margins for a long time. And I, I feel like I have sat under enough teachings and been around Christendom long enough to know the game that people in this position play related to money and just deploy to get people to give money. It, it can feel manipulating. In fact, in some ways it is manipulating and not something that I'm aiming to do here. So I'm, I'm probably more uh, overly aware and overly sensitive to how this um, platform has been used to force and coerce people to give money out of obligation or guilt. So just let me be really clear. I don't want your money. <laughs> If, if you want to give to this church, by all means, if the Lord is impressing upon your heart to give, please do that. But do not do it for my sake, do it for your sake, for your own soul's sake. Be obedient to the Spirit of the Lord to give. But I'm not approaching this topic because I am concerned or I'm worried even uh, or want people to give more money. I'm approaching this topic because generosity is how the world actually works. Giving your time and your money and your energy and your resources away is actually where life is found. And generosity is inherently human because we are made in the image of God and God is inherently generous. And so we, in our broken view of the world, believe that receiving is where the fun is, but it's actually the opposite. God himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive, meaning giving your time and money and energy and resources away for the benefit and betterment of someone else is what it means to imitate God, and it is the good life. Now, I want to take a few minutes and just let us take some inventory of where we are at as a culture. It is probably no surprise to any of you that we live in the richest nation in the entire world and probably the richest nation in the history of the entire world. Right now, you're running at a GDP of $21.5 trillion. And one of the most celebrated days of the year is not Thanksgiving, but is the day after, known as Black Friday, or really more like the week of and the week after where the internet is... Lobbying deal after deal after deal. But before there was Cyber Monday, uh, there were times where literally videos would be going viral over people fighting in your local Walmart over the latest screen or gadgets. Why? Why do we do this? Well, I think it's because we inherently believe that owning X will bring about a desired level of happiness we want something, therefore we must have it. So we are not filled with gratitude as much as we are filled with consumption. And the enemy of gratitude is probably one of the most unchallenged but pressing issues of our day, and that is greed. It's one of those acceptable underground sins. And I say acceptable because I've never heard anyone actually confess it. And I say underground because we're so involved in the cultural ocean of possessions and the need for more that we can't even see that we're swimming in it. If you are breathing, you were born in a sea of consumptionism one journalist in 1927, which is 100 years ago, said, the American citizen's first importance to his country is now no longer that of citizen, but that of consumer. So here's some interesting facts. If you make $25,000 a year or more, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealth. And if you make $34,000 a year, you're in the top listen to this the storage unit industry is a 38 billion dollar industry in the u.s alone occupying 2.3 billion square feet which by the way is enough for every single american to have over seven square feet to themselves in essence we could house our entire country in storage units What is perhaps less humorous is we could certainly solve the homelessness crisis by our storage units. But instead of putting a roof over the heads of people, we pay money for places to store more stuff that we don't need, don't use, don't want to look at, and don't have room for. We are consumed and obsessed with stuff. Or what about this? Did you know the, in, the average person in 2021 sees more ads in a single day than a typical person saw in their entire lifetime 50 years ago? And I mean, for those of you on social media, you know that your feed is no longer about human beings. It is about advertisements. Consumption is the new religion. Amazon is the new temple. Deals are the new liturgy. Influencers are the new evangelist, money is the new God, spending, the new discipline, and more, the new currency. I mean, it is John D. Rockefeller, the titan in the oil industry, the richest man in the entire world when he was alive. When asked, how much money is enough for you? He responded with, just one more dollar. Just just one more dollar. There are so many other gods competing for our attention and our affection, but none more than the God of more. And when it comes to money and when it comes to stuff, when I say stuff, I mean wealth, I mean possessions, I even mean status. What we are dealing with is not about rationale. It's actually about desire. Advertisers do not care what we think about a product. They care if we desire that product. They're not playing to our brain's uh, cerebral cortex uh, as if they're trying to convince us to make a logical decision to buy X or Y. They are playing to our desire for a certain lifestyle. And what we have to ask ourselves is, how is this forming us? Because it is. We are inundated with sales pitch after sales pitch and lifestyle after lifestyle. And if you think it is not forming your desire at some level, conscious or subconscious, they already have you. You are their target. You are their metric. And we must admit that to combat this, means a radical lifestyle of reorientation. We have to have some type of counterformation. And while advertising has certainly changed and the consumption and culture has evolved over time, the issue in pull and desire toward wealth and success and accumulation is just not new. Right, you just heard Matthew 6:19 through 24. And it's a well-known text. It's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes after the thing we don't want him to touch, which is our relationship to money. And for us in America, in the South, in the Bible Belt, I believe this is probably one of the more well-known teachings of Scripture and the easiest to ignore and explain away and to do without. So let's, let's break it down. Says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is Jesus' manifesto. When people think about Jesus, both inside and outside the church, much of the time, whether interpreted rightly or wrongly, they think of the Sermon on the Mount. And the heart of what Jesus is getting at here is motive and desire. Where you put your resources, which is your time and your money, is where you put your inner life. And your heart is the steering wheel that drives the engine of your desire. He goes on, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So in the day of Jesus, if you had a healthy eye, it meant two things. You were focused on living with a high degree of intentionality, and you were generous to the poor. So, this is an issue of desire, and desire manifests itself out in priorities. If your affections and your desires are preoccupied with consumption or saving or retirement or the 401k or your stock market or the accumulation of things, then it will affect and infect your entire life. Because greed is not just evil. It is actually the root of all kinds of evil. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt the warnings about money are not just about the love of money. Our relationship to money is one of the barometers of our spiritual health. Jim Pollock says, To take Jesus' words seriously, we'd have to say wealth is a spiritual liability, a spiritual liability. To have money and a healthy amount of it isn't inherently sinful, but it is inherently dangerous. Now, how dangerous is it? Well, Jesus does not say it is more difficult for a rich man who loves money to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He says it is more difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Why is it so dangerous? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so risky? Well, he goes on, Because no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here's where it's difficult for us. We treat money as if it is neutral. I treat money as if it is neutral, but there's nothing actually neutral about it. The exhortation is not you shouldn't serve both God and money, the exhortation actually is, you can't. It is impossible. Jesus is not suggesting that it's a poor idea, but rather it is not the way the world is designed. Besides the kingdom of God, there is no topic or theme that Jesus speaks of more frequently than money, either an allusion to money or a parable about wealth or material things, or or honestly, just an outright denunciation uh, of accumulation and consumption. And honestly, it's very interesting that the only God that Jesus points out in the New Testament is the God of mammon or the God of money. Now, it's interesting, the word mammon comes from the Greek word mammonos. Essentially, the word translated means money and wealth and material possessions. And if you were to do a deep dive study into Revelation, you would read in Revelation 18 about the city of Babylon. And it is a description of a world given over to the spirit of mammon, to the spirit of consumption, to the spirit of consumerism. And it's, it's easy, quite frankly, to talk about the things that we don't struggle with. But it is hard-pressed, if we're honest, for most of us to bring our relationship with money and to talk about our relationship with money to the throne of grace and with other people. And, I mean, most of us are relatively terrified about opening up our bank account to anyone else, uh, outside of our immediate home, much less to the God of the cosmos. And so in an individualistic society like ours, it can feel daunting and intimidating and quite frankly, really unwise and impossible. But check out the warning in First Timothy. This is First Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that last line is so fascinating to me because here's how we read it, right? There were some people who got rich and realized they didn't need God anymore and therefore said goodbye to church and community and stopped believing in this Jesus thing altogether. But he's not saying that people got rich and intellectually decided to walk away from Jesus. He's saying that the desire for more... The affection for stuff has driven people into pain and suffering and destruction. Their wandering from the faith is not an intellectual questioning. It's just a bodily craving. Again, it's not about logic. It's about desire. And here is where it gets personal, I think, for most of us. I don't know about you, but I grew up with a pretty sound theology against the prosperity gospel, right? The the idea that the amount of money you have is tied to the amount God loves you was taught to be as a heretical doctrine, and we still hold to that. That is heresy, many of us rail against that system of belief theologically and still ignore the fact that Jesus has much to say about what I do with my money. So I believe most people in the church look at their money like this. I give 10% of my income to God and his church, and the rest is mine to do whatever I want whenever I want to. Because look, I gave back to God, right? I did my portion, I did my part, Uh, And now the rest is, the the other 90% is really left to me to do whatever I want to do with it. I believe that that is just another name for the prosperity gospel. If you take a closer look at the Old Testament, the idea of tithing comes from the laws of the Torah. But here's what's interesting. There are three places where the tithe is talked about. And there is some debate about the details, but we know for certain a few things the Israelites were called to give a tenth of their produce and their land to the temple annually. They were also called to save up another 10% so that, so that at the end of the year, they would have a big party and invite the poor and the Levites that they knew. Also, simultaneously, they would save up so that every three years, you donate another tithe to essentially the local food bank for the community. And while it is difficult to know if some of these tithes are tied into the same year or not, I think we can say that at a minimum, they are probably giving at least 20%, if not more. So when we read the New Testament, we don't really see the earliest Christians practicing tithing and how we would think about 10% of our income because they were committed to so much more than that. A lavish lifestyle of generosity. And we can make a good assumption that even though the practice of tithing may not be explicitly mentioned, the assumption was the bar was much higher because the vision was much greater. It was a radical reorientation of their relationship to money. And the commands in Scripture about money and really the desire for money are everywhere. Here are two of them. This first one from Ephesians 5, for this, of, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I've heard a lot of teaching on immorality and impurity, but a greedy person is an idolater, someone who desires more. In Hebrews 13, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Free from the love of money, free in inferring that a love of money is actually enslaving us. We are chained to money and its hold it has on our heart. So actually being detached from money is freeing for our souls. Instead, we think in some ways, if we are detached from money, that we uh, have to exercise self-control. And exercising self-control, we have to use self-discipline. And using self-discipline, we think we are enslaved, but it is actually the opposite. In using self-control and self-discipline, by the Spirit of God, we are actually free to enjoy the world God has given us without being attached to the resources of it. What would happen if this church took on the radical nature of generosity? I mean, what if we had the compelling lifestyle of the early Jesus followers? We would say we have more than what is enough for us, so we look for opportunities to give it away. Our God is Jesus, not mammon. In fact, mammon will one day bow to God, and God will actually use material possessions through the local church by the power of the Spirit to bless the community at large to the praise of his glorious grace instead of allowing Jesus' followers to fall prey to its devouring nature. Tim Keller has this interesting phrase that he calls financial promiscuity to describe the early church. And he says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body. And they gave practically everybody their money. How countercultural would a church like that be at a place like Knoxville, a neighborhood like ours, and we take our sexual ethic as seriously as we take our finances? I, I personally, I would love to be accused of keeping our bodies to ourselves, but never keeping our money to ourselves. And we may be seen as a bit prude, perhaps, and maybe even uptight with how we think about our bodies, particularly related to sex. But when it comes to our money, we desire to be a church marked by radical generosity because our giving is a direct reflection of where the depths of our heart is. Now, there are two quick points about generosity. The first is this, generosity is about reorientation. Generosity is about reorientation. I am going to tread gently here, but I believe the Spirit of God has something for us. If all we do is come here on Sundays and receive encouragement, which is good and we should, but our conscience and our heart is never really pricked or challenged and our commitment for our life is never to really look more like Jesus by taking actual practical steps, then we have to ask ourselves, are we more interested in being entertained or being changed? So what I'm about to share is not a list of rules. It's not a list of things to do. uh, It's not a list of anything, really. It's just some suggestions of how we might practically walk this out. Some of us may need to think about sharing more instead of buying more. What would it look like if this community chose to share more things instead of buy more things? In fact, it's it's in some ways a resistance to the pull of our culture when we say, I, I'm not going to buy that. I am not going to own that because I don't have to own it. I'm just going to borrow it. And I better than not owning it is not being owned by it? What if we chose to borrow instead of buy? Some of us may need to look at our budgets and say, we have been given so much. Where in the world can we give it away? Should we create a generosity fund every month? Or just look around what in our home is nice and very usable, but we don't use it. Who do we know that needs it? Who do we know we could bless it with? Some of us may need to ask ourselves, what is it that we're actually buying? Do we know the actual cost of things that we buy? Maybe for some of you, it's clothes. Do you know where your clothes are made? How your clothes are made? How many clothes you have? How many children in factories overseas have made them? I would highly suggest watching the documentary, The True Cost. If you look at the price of clothing over the last 25, 30 years, uh, it has been decreasing for for a significant period of time, but the human and environmental costs have been increasing dramatically. And this, I think, honestly, is a paradigm-shifting film that really pulls back the curtain on the untold story and asks us to consider who really pays the price for my clothing. Or maybe it's not closed for you, but what about food? Uh, Where does our food come from? Fast food and fast fashion go hand in hand. It's the most amount of product for the least amount of money, and the cost is called exploitation. Interestingly, the sister of generosity is simplicity. And living a simpler life is not merely about less stuff. It's actually a call to justice. And uh, you know, I, I realize as I'm saying that, it, I think it can feel a bit of, uh, a bit affronting to us. Like, how in the world could you question my choice of t-shirts or jeans or where I go to get dinner? And honestly, it's actually a fairly helpful question. But we swim in the pool of materialism so much, and we've never questioned it in our entire lives, and when someone says the water's poisoned and wet, we look at them and say, huh, what's water? Because we are in so deep. And some of us, myself, on top of this list, need to open ourselves up to the Spirit of God and ask Him to move deeply in our hearts for a renewed vision of self-control. I mean, I will stand up here and confess, impulse buying is a real thing for me. And even this week, I have had to repent and confess to the Lord of the struggle I have in this particular area. But, but I think the call is to open up our hearts and open up our literal desires And say, Jesus, you are the Lord over my money, which means you are the Lord over my affection for money. So generosity is about reorientation. And lastly, generosity is primarily about love. Generosity is primarily about love. It's actually less about stuff and more about love. Amy Carmichael was a irish christian missionary and she has this zinger of a line you give more than money things or time when you are generous giving helps you develop a genuine concern interest in the person or cause but you can always give without loving but you can never love without giving you can always give without loving but you can never love without giving we cannot say we are a people of love if we are not inherently becoming a people who give. People of love are generous people. Our time is not ours to keep, and our money is not ours to hoard. And yet at the same time, it's not as if we are sacrificing our money to God. Uh, we, we give because God has first given to us. We do not give out of obligation to God. We actually give out of imitation of God. I mean, think about this. God created the world out of love, out of his generous heart. And then not only did he create the world, he then gave us this world to steward and have dominion over. And then he stepped into the world and gave us his life and his lifestyle and his teachings and his words. Then he gave us ultimately his life, his bloodied, beat up life. resurrected and now we have been given the spirit of adoption. The God of love loves to give. It is his natural disposition. He is bent towards self-giving love. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He is not loving us so that in return, we may help him out. He loves us because he loves us and he is generous to us because he is generous to us. That is who he is. It is the deepest part of him. And God is a beautiful paradox because the way you gain life is lose it. What is strength in the scriptures but weakness? And how do you love? Give. It honestly doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but the opposite of generosity actually isn't greed. The opposite of generosity is hate. To withhold what we have out of self-preservation or self-indulgence is to look at our neighbor or our coworker or our sibling right in the eye and say, I don't love you. Robert Murray McChain uh, was a Scottish minister in the 1800s, And he says this, I fear there may be many hearing me who may well know that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. You will be beggars throughout eternity. Our generosity is a sign that money has no hold on us. That stuff has no hold on us. Now, of course, generosity includes your money and your lifestyle, but it also includes much more than that. See, we give our hearts away Uh, typically in two ways during the week. Uh, One is our money and one is our time. Because you can actually give a lot of money to a lot of places and never give an ounce of your time. In fact, I would argue it's becoming increasingly popular to write blank checks with a disengaged heart. I'll give money, right? I got plenty of that, but everyone has the exact same amount of time. And I'm not willing to give that being generous has so much to do or has as, as much to do with your schedule as it does your bank account and being a generous person means your schedule gets disrupted because being a generous person, you become increasingly content in a disrupted calendar. And the way you spend your money and the way you spend your time should look foolish to your neighbor, but God uses the fool to shame the wise. The way we live and the way we act and the way we spend our money and our time should shock our neighbor. They should be asking the question of our lifestyle, why would you do that? Why? And that goes, quite frankly, for those of us who, who spend everything, but it also goes to, to those of us who like to save everything, who are constantly worried about how much money is going out of our bank account. We actually never buy anything because we're so frugal. And stinginess and savings can be just as much a God as consumption and spending. And In some ways, it's actually more so because it's done in the church in the name of stewardship. And stewardship can be wise. Uh, In fact, in some ways, it's good to be a steward, but stewardship without sacrifice is just worldly savings. Stewardship without sacrifice is just worldly savings. People who do not follow Jesus should genuinely wonder why the economics of the church does not reflect the economics of the city. Why does the way that we spend our time and money not look like the way the world spends our time and money. And we have to ask ourselves, actually, does it? Because if it does, we have not taken seriously the call to be generous people. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus know the generous heart of God. In our failures, we have known it. In our suffering, we have known it. In our weakness, we have known it. In our sin, we have known it. But to not embody the generosity of God is to not have experienced it. To believe that every last penny in your account and every last minute of your day does not belong to God implies that your heart has not been captured by his generosity. Now, shame and guilt are not going to lead us to the way of generosity because shame and guilt never lead us to places except for more shame and more guilt. So, the invitation of God here is not not that you start to feel guilty. The invitation of God is actually that you begin to be honest. So, the scriptures are not a book about guilt, but they are a book about transparency. They invite us, in fact, to a life of transparency. And when we are honest and when we become transparent, we begin to receive the grace that both forgives us And empowers us. Only when the belief about God's generosity has moved from our head to our heart and into our hands will we begin to experience the freedom of God. If one of our identity pillars is a servant to King Jesus, then we embody God in that we serve one another and we serve the world through our generosity. The call to godliness will always go against the pool of wealth. And the challenge in a city like Knoxville with an onslaught of ads in our pocket and the subtle pool of affluence and safety and comfort is constantly whispering us just a little more. Just a little more. The temptation will be to give in. But the call of courage will be to resist and revolt against the spirit of materialism that captures our hearts. God is inviting us into a life of generosity. Won't you join him in that life-giving freedom, detached from stuff, detached from money? and attached to the grace and mercy of our generous God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicknox.org.